0: This is Ed Vasey and this is this week's edition of The Vasey View and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Rear Admiral Alex Burton. Alex had a very distinguished career in the Navy. You can probably work that out by the fact he rose to be a Rear Admiral 32 years and ended up as the Admiral commanding surface ships in Her Majesty's Royal Navy and I spent a lovely day with Alex before he retired from the Royal Navy when he very kindly invited me on board the U.S. aircraft carrier, the George H.W. Bush, which at the time was visiting Portsmouth. And anyone like me who's a massive fan of Top Gun can imagine what it was like to spend a day on board that extraordinarily impressive ship. But since Alex has retired from the Royal Navy, he hasn't followed what I might unfairly predict as the career path of retired admirals and going into a big corporate Defence job, he's actually gone to work for a startup. The startup is called Rebellion Defence. It's based in Washington, D.C. and in London, but it's no ordinary startup in the sense that on its board it's got these slightly obscure figures like Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Alphabet, and James Murdoch, because Rebellion Defence, I think, is at the forefront of potentially a whole new wave of startups that are looking at the defense industry, and particularly, obviously, at technology and software. So I wanted to explore in my chat with Alex the whole way that defense is changing. And we sort of, as layman, me as a layman, know what that means in terms of cyber warfare and space warfare moving away from the traditional way of fighting wars. But there's a lot more to it uh, than that. And I can't think of anyone better to discuss it with than Alex, so welcome, Alex. Thanks very much, Ed. Thank you. Great to have you on. Now, I gave a brief uh, description of Rebellion Defence, which does it no justice at all. So perhaps you can just kick off by talk- talking about the company and what it's focused on.
1: Yeah. So, so the company was founded in, in Washington uh, in July last year, and we launched in, in London in January, January this year. So sort of six months of our life has been the new normal of COVID. It was set up by, by three enlightened individuals. Uh, Chris Lynch, who was parachuted by um, President Obama to launch and set up the defense digital service within the Pentagon. Um, he was joined by a colleague, Nicole Camarillo, who was on the board of the US Cyber Command. And the third member was, uh, is um, Ollie Lewis, who was deputy head of the government digital services in the UK. Um, and, and they set the company up unashamedly looking at defense and security so defense with a c and an s um, unashamedly looking solely at software um, and and with an acknowledgement that defense needed the same quality of software both in its technology and cutting edge technology and and the relationship between customer and supplier the same relationship in software in its in its corporate world as the servicemen had when they were um, when they were going home and using their iPads and um, and, and computers. It's um, it is ridiculous that defence has to rely on a software update every five years when it happens overnight with you and I.
0: Yeah, in fact, um, I've been discussing the kind of uh, how to modernise government uh, services and how uh, far behind they are in terms of what we as consumers experience. You know. It's the old cliche of ordering from Amazon and getting it a couple of hours Uh, later. I just want to talk... uh, I mean, there's a great article in Wired magazine a few weeks ago by Dan Korski, an old friend of mine, who uh, worked in number 10, supervising the government digital service. And he makes the point, may or may not be true, but it's a great dinner party line, that the latest strike fighter, the F-35, has a computer that can make 400 million calculations a second. Yet the latest NVIDIA Pegasus chip can make a calculation of 320 trillion calculations a second, 800 times faster. And you'll find the NVIDIA Pegasus state-of-the-art chip apparently in any modern truck that you buy. So it does seem extraordinary. It's partly because the military is sort of used to being secretive and used to kind of building a barrier around itself that to, again, Use a cliche: the soldier coming home and using an iPad is probably using the most sophisticated piece of technology that he'll use all year, compared to what he uses in the army. Yeah, Ed, you're right. I mean, you you reinforce
1: the reason why um, Chris, Nicole, and Ollie set the company up, and uh, and 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 why Eric and and James chose to invest and join the board. Um, we're, we're unusual um, in in the world of um, defense and 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 Less so in software, but in the world of defense, because we're venture capitalist backed. Um, we, we, we—they fundamentally believe—and and part of it came from the dynamic that grew out of the Jedi program in Washington. Um, some of your listeners may be aware that there was a move by uh, the workforce within Google um, to distance itself from defense, and several people who believed in defense and believed in in, in the fact that there will be occasions when we have to take up arms to uphold our principles and believe that we'd only be able to do that successfully if we had the cutting edge edge technology and if that couldn't come from the established players whether those were the established defense industrial players who don't deliver with the agility that software companies do or the established commercial software company players where there was some question i think the debate has moved on, but there was some question around the Google Jedi uh, contract. Then it had to come from somewhere else. So it had to come from a startup with all the innovation and the agility that startups have. But because it was dealing with defense, um, it was felt that it needed to have that supercharge of venture capitalist backing early on um, to, to, to give it the steroids to deliver.
0: So I want to go back at, uh, in a minute to the whole relationship between startups and defense because there's an interesting paradox I want to explore. But let's just go big for a minute and talk about uh, the wars of the future, if I can put it that way, if that doesn't sound too sort of uh, pugilistic. You know, as I said earlier, you know, we used to kind of, you know, we all watch war movies and we used to, you know, planes and ships and guns. But actually, the war of the future, to a certain extent, is already being fought. It's about taking down your critical national infrastructure. It's about distorting public opinion, on social uh, media it 's about cutting uh, grabbing hold of your data or even cutting you off from your data you know what is the war of the future going to look like because it 's less likely to look like one where you know ships appear on the horizon and we 're off you're right you're right it's all about it 's going
1: to be about data it's going to be about owning the data just like it has been over the last 10, 15 years in the commercial world um, those that win will win on having the data and exploiting the data for information. But I'm going to sort of rather cheekily take you to task on how different that is, because, you know, history... Don't worry, Alex, out...
0: every single person I've interviewed on this podcast has taken me to task and told me... I'm, so you <laughs> well, are I'm going to... No, I'm not going to tell you <laughs> you're an idiot, but I'm
1: going to give you a... I'm going to give you a historically very, very timely example about why data and information Trump's mass. And that's fundamentally what we're talking about here. Data and information trumping mass. We've just uh, commemorated um, the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Uh, there was a, a tragically small service in Westminster Abbey on it. Now let's just talk about the numbers in the Battle of Britain. Uh, Fighter Command uh, had 1,300 pilots initially deployed, Germany had 4,000, Fighter Command had 650 aircraft. Germany had 3,000 aircraft initially deployed. The numbers there are staggeringly different. Now let's look at the losses. Fighter Command lost 544 people. Germany lost 2,600. Now, Germany were using bombers with more people. But fundamentally, Britain won the Battle of Britain. And Britain didn't win the Battle of Britain because it had three times the number of Spitfires to Messerschmitts. Britain won the Battle of Witten because it won on the data and it won on the information. It won on the tactics and the ability to pass information rapidly to those on the front line so that they could exploit it to take the advantage.
0: So, my point, I suppose. Now, what was, just briefly, because this gone. is so good, what was that? Was radar.
1: And so, it was, things. what was the technology yeah, it was, that you used? It was a combination of several things, it was a combination of radar so the sensors as as we would call them now radar we we had but it was also a a hugely sophisticated command and control um network um that allowed individual airfields to be told immediately where the uh, where the threat was coming from um at a pace that allowed them to get airborne and and you know take the high ground or the or or the height for want of a better word so so it was it was the, the data gained from the sensors, but data is only as useful uh, as the manner in which it's analysed. So it was then analysed at those command and control centres, all of those pictures that you quite rightly said from seeing your, your, your war films, that Battle of Britain, where the, um, a, a load of predominantly um, uh, women moving blocks around a large chart. That was That is the, the 1940s version of 21st century command and control. And it is that that we need to exploit to ensure that we get the advantage, not building another 200 or 300 aircraft, because, because that, as the Battle of Britain proven uh, proved, uh, w- was not where you get the advantage.
0: Well, that is absolutely brilliant. I'm glad you took me to task on that. I love the idea that, southern a little thing say, so, that the Battle of Britain was a data war, uh, that Britain won. So what is the data war of the 2020s, the 2030s, going to be about. It's going to be about taking out our satellites, taking down our electricity supply. What other things? I'm not a historian, Ed,
1: um, but but history is very good at, at at teaching us where lessons should be learned. Those those nations and 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 collections of allies that influence what I would describe as the global commons are those nations and allies. Um, that are able to define the, the, the norms within those commons. So, you know, in, in days of yore, uh, when Britannia ruled the waves, we ruled the waves and we ruled the ocean common and we established the rules of the sea and we established the norms around those. And they, we built upon those of Spain and France and well, predominantly Spain and Spain and the Netherlands as maritime, maritime nations. We then handed that on to the Americans. But since that time, there are more... The more global commons. You know, there is there is the atmosphere, there is space, and and critically there is there is cyberspace and, and the digital domain. And so it is vital that countries that share our beliefs have an influence in, in, in those domains. If you look at the sea, everyone recognizes what are known as choke points in the ocean. So those those areas where large densities of shipping uh, bring our Yeah, the Suez Canal, the Straits of Gibraltar, the Malacca Straits, the Straits of Hormuz, tight constraints where shipping that brings our raw supplies and and manufactured goods and and enables the globe to trade. Well, the same is the case in every other domain. So when you look at the digital domain, you're looking at the sea cables and you're looking at the satellites. When you're looking at at space, you're looking at what's known as the cislunar, which is the space between us and the moon. And, and those will become choke points. And those nations that have significant influence over those those spaces will be ones that are able to have a seat at the table to decide how those global commons are governed. And if we're not there, um, then they'll be governed by those that may wish to do ill. And And that is the competition around um the the digital space and and space is occurring right now largely outside the sight of the general public
0: we're in the middle of a defense review at the moment in the uk and i think it's the third defense review we've had in a decade and if you were in charge of that defense review if you were a dictator for a day and your word was law what would you be spending our money on would you be buying more ships and jet fighters or would you be investing in geeks in t-shirts in front of their computers uh, that's a that's a great leading question ed um if,
1: to, to as someone who now works in a software company that is unashamedly disinterested um in uh, building building hardware let alone you know ma- manufacturing ships and tanks i mean the answer the answer for me where i were i dictator for the day and there would be many people that would consider that a really bad idea and were i dictator for the day then i would invest very very heavily um in the data and analyzing that data and securing that data to provide credible information in a timely manner to the war fighters on the front line and i suppose it comes back to my point uh, and, and, and reflection on on the Battle of Britain. You know, the UK would not, the, Britain would not have won the Battle of Britain if it if it had had 50% more fighter jets. Uh, but it did win the Battle of Britain because it had that ability to look at its sensors, analyse its sensors, rapidly get that data out to the warfighter, so that they could stop the the German bombers wreaking havoc on the on the airfields across the southeast of England. So so if you look at history for lessons in the future, you say, don't bother investing in 50% more. And we know that it wouldn't be a 50% increase in hardware. So let's say 10% increase in hardware. We know that an increase of 10% in the hardware in the Battle of Britain wouldn't have, wouldn't have won if it had been at the expense of data.
0: You talk about, for example, that you would retire any ship that couldn't connect to the cloud. You've talked about setting a target for uncrewed, by which I mean, you must mean autonomous uh, weapon systems uh, in the future. So basically, you're saying that um, there's a danger in any defense review that we look back. I mean, it's interesting The debate at the moment is you know, panic about whether or not we're going to retire tanks. Uh, and we have to spend. Billions of pounds on two aircraft carriers, but we are in danger of investing in the infrastructure of the past instead of investing in the infrastructure of the future. Yes, I'm. I'm sort of reflecting back on 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 the sort of last nine
1: months of COVID here, Ed, where where um, your previous government colleagues, your now government colleagues, turned around to us and and said, we will follow the science um, on on our decisions. Um, and I would sort of add a little bit more on, on, on that with the defense review, which is follow the science and, and not the emotion. I mean, I've been seduced by the emotion of the armed forces. The armed forces have emotion riven through their, their DNA. It's why men and women sacrifice themselves for a cause, um, whether that's 617 Squadron, the Fleet, Air Arm, Royal Marines, or, or the Armored Corps. But the problem with emotion is that it struggles to keep up with change. At the same time, it presents a collection of sort of legitimate but subsidiary reasons why change shouldn't occur. One of the other worries, particularly for the armed forces, is it tends to establish a sort of fair share between services, which is rarely the correct conclusion for defense and security. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of the three services should um, have the lion's share what i am suggesting is that a a, an investment at this stage in hardware is the wrong answer and and i'm also again reflecting back on covid and seeing how quickly um, organizations whether they were commercial organizations or public bodies pivoted and changed in manners that they probably had in their 10-year plan but they didn't they made no attempt to do There was so much internal friction that that home working or the GP's telesurgery just didn't occur. And it took the shock of COVID to drive that change. Now, what worries me is that with the military, um, if you wait for a shock to drive change imposed from without, it's gonna happen in battle. Uh, and we've, we, we've seen that in a couple of the conflicts that we've had over the, over the last 15, year, 15 years. So we need the sort of enlightenment that happened in the late 30s, where, where the government imposes a shock on defense and, and basically demands that some, some capabilities, unless they're connected, for instance, unless they're connected to the cloud, they should be retired. Um, And and, unless you can get to 20 percent uncrewed within five years, then it should be retired. Why should 20 percent of our uh, of our military workforce be sitting in classrooms? You know, it's 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 last century's approach to war when our enemy are playing in right at the edge of the front end of this century.
0: What I want to explore a bit further is is this idea of what we invest in the future because it does strike me again speaking as a layman that you know any country really even with quite a modest defense budget can become uh, a key player in defense so if you say for example take russia uh, probably unhelpful to me to name a specific country but uh if we get into a conflict with russia we're much more likely to deter the Russians if we can say to them, well, we can take out Moscow's infrastructure. We can turn your lights off uh, or, uh, and shut down your data centers. So please, can you stop? Just as Russia is already, in certain circumstances, allegedly uh, destabilizing countries with social media and indeed has taken down the critical infrastructure of some of the Baltic states o- o- on occasion. Uh, and it would strike me that actually compared to the investment, say, in an aircraft carrier, and by the way, I think the aircraft carriers are an extraordinary technology achievement for the UK government. But compared to that investment and what you could invest in, frankly, offensive cyber, you get more bang for your buck by uh, investing in offensive cyber. A couple of points from the early part of your your, your, your comment.
1: I mean, I, we are not in conflict with Russia. We're not in conflict with China. Um, or or, or, or other lesser states of lesser capability that that clearly you know wish us ill, but my goodness, we're in competition, you know, and 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 those states, those states um are acting in the manner that you've described now, and and some of those actions are are being thrown into the public eye, but many of the actions that those states are doing. Uh, it, 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 the, the, many of the actions that those states make against us are quite deliberately hidden from the public eye. So the public eye, the public generally doesn't feel as though it is it is under threat from Russia and from China, but but within the digital domain, uh, within some of the sponsoring of of, of non-state actors uh within offensive as, as you say offensive cyber in some instances they are eroding our credibility in the global stage in some instances um they are eroding our own our own capability um and we need to exactly as you described we need to regain our deterrent posture not just in what the military describes as the physical domain the aircraft carriers the tanks the fast jets uh, but also in the virtual domain and that means Um, offensive cyber, which this country has a long history, in, in, as is is America, for your American audience as well, a really long and credible history in the exploitation of of data, uh, the defense of it and and the offense of it. But it is an area that we absolutely need to continue to invest in to um, maintain and in some areas regain our deterrent advantage.
0: So can I just explore the paradox of the startup in the world of defense? So on the one hand, we regard uh, the defense industry as sort of clunky, out of date, very expensive. You procure something and over 10 years, the uh, procurement requirements change so much, the costs massively overrun. On the other hand, DARPA, uh, the Defense Research Institute in the US is held up as a sort of holy grail of how government can drive innovation and all the things that we now take for granted, like GPS allegedly came out of DARPA uh, research. So how, does, how do we pivot defense to the startup mentality? How do we make sure that you can update your defense systems in the same way you can buy an iPhone 11 a year after you've got your iPhone X?
1: So, so the, the start has happened. Um, I mean, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, the, the senior leadership, whether that is uh, political senior leadership or, or um, serving military and civil servants, um, absolutely believe that, that the change needs to happen, that they need to become digitally eloquent, that they need the sort of innovation that Silicon Valley and Seattle and and Shoreditch and other areas of the UK deliver. Um, And and the examples of that are a a large number um, of of very exciting trials that that take innovative young companies like ourselves and take their capabilities and put them into, into bespoke trials and and small scale operations the challenge then comes to productionize that um, what's known in in defense is that valley of death between um being able to make the relatively low one-off commitment for a trial but then being challenged to culturally move to a, a production model of something that has an element of risk and and there are a couple of reasons why that's a challenge. You and I um, are completely used to software as a service. We, 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 we know that when we want Netflix, we happily pay 15 pounds a month to get our Netflix and, and it's all you can eat. Not only that, but we know that the agreement is that Netflix continues to keep that software um, totally relevant and probably adds more capabilities and more um, um, applications to, to that for our 15 pounds a month. That is really, really alien to defense. Um, And that's a a cultural journey we're having to take. We and other software companies are having to take defense on both sides of the Atlantic down. They're they're used to giving major primes uh, billions and billions of dollars and then sitting, waiting for five years time when the next upgrade happens. They are not used to a subscription model for their software?
0: Just in terms of, uh, you know, defence as a service and subscriptions. Um, you know, I think one good thing that the uh, Ministry of Defence has done is the, are these Percy Hobart Fellowships, where they take uh, relatively young people in the military and drop them into a startup. And I think Rebellion has indeed had one of these uh, fellows in into rebellion. What scales fell from their eyes, as it were, in terms of being able to work in your away from the military classroom away from a big steel ship? what kind of um, change of thinking do you think that kind of process is going to bring about um, well, I can sort of
1: speak from personal experience because it happened happened to me in a far grayer and older age than, yeah, exactly. than them because you know i did thirty one years the, the, the um, we had a flying observer from the fleet air arm uh, join us for three months. I mean, you'd need to ask him whether he enjoyed it, but I got a sufficiently honest answer from him and talking to some of the other people on the fellowship that that they found it absolutely fascinating. They found it really useful. They found it, as you rightly say, an element of a culture shock. Uh, I think that um, the sort of commentary i got back was my goodness at times it appears quite anarchic it's really it's really fast chaos is the wrong word but it's but it's fast moving um it's swift decision making um and and there's risk taking now i don't think i don't think some of those phrases are too alien for, um, for, for defence. No, exactly.
0: um, it happens on the battlefield in
1: theory, all those Because stuff. it happens, exactly, because it does happen on the battlefield. But the challenge comes when defence moves from the battlefield where they're prepared to act with speed, agility and take risk into the acquisition area um, where they tend, and I remember this from my own personal experience, they tend to forensically a- a- analyse the risk of doing something um, which without analyzing fully the risk of the status quo. so they, you tend to all answers tend to favor the status quo, whether that is the status quo in, in capability or status quo in an acquisition um, uh, uh, process or the status quo in, um, in a program. It doesn't worry me. I think it's a, it's a fantastic start for the services. Um, but it needs to go much further. If we really, really want um, our services to gain an element of of that disruption, that innovation, and and, I mean, don't get me wrong, we don't want too much of it. We we don't want too much of it. Um, But if we want them to gain uh, an element of it, an eloquence in digital development, um, then it needs to start when they walk through the gates of Dartmouth, Sandhurst and Cranwell, and it needs to form you know, as, as much of their understanding as re- battlefield tours and, um, and defense writing and you know, those, la- those previous languages.
0: Alex, just to end up this podcast, I just wanna ask you, I think the final kind of dilemma for defense, given the whole thesis of this podcast is about how uh, defense should pivot towards the industries and technology of the future is uh, could you win the Falklands War with the military that you envisage? Because at the end of the day, a war is finally won if it is a war, often by, as it were, that phrase boots on the ground. You can't ultimately win a, a traditional war and traditional wars I think will still happen in terms of the acquisition of territory by force without boots on the ground. So the trouble with any defense industry and defence budget is you have to sort of cater for so many different ways of fighting.
1: So uh, it, that's, a, that's a massive, I mean, it's a massive question with a trite. Yeah, let's spend with the, the tri- next hour
0: answering. With
1: a, a massive <laughs> question with, the tri- with a trite subtext. I, because I just, the Falklands one, you know, we, we, we could talk for two hours on, you know, whether the Argentinians would invade the Falklands and, and then if they did, whether we'd be able to get them back, you know, etc. cetera, to some extent, Um, The reason that they are not is because of broader politics and also the deterrence posture that we've got down there um, and the overwhelming capability we have against Argentina. But but, we are not shaping a defense posture around around the Falkland, however much some some, may may want to use it as a a metaphor. Great power competition has not gone away over the last 20 years. We've just been distracted by other things. And, and, you know, that's no criticism of those people that looked at Afghanistan and looked at Iraq and looked at um, al-Qaeda al- and, and, then, and then ISIS. But we were distracted by them. In, during that time, during that time, Russia and China have built um, some pretty extraordinary capabilities beyond the physical. And we if we are to maintain some form of deterrence alongside our allies, then we need to develop those capabilities as well we have we have got two fantastic aircraft carriers with extraordinary uh, fifth generation jets we've got you know new ajax armored vehicles coming in for the um, for the army we've got some fantastic hardware coming uh, coming along that's got to be supported by software that is kept up to date overnight you know on a day-by-day basis not every five years um otherwise otherwise we won't be able to deter because we won't be able to deliver retribution
0: well on that note (laughs) the delivery of retribution thank you very much alex that was fascinating a fascinating discussion i do think uh without wishing to give away your intellectual property a book on the Battle of Britain as a war on data, uh, (laughs) is long overdue. (laughs) It's an absolutely fascinating insight, and I think it reads well into actually the battle we're currently fighting against Covid, but also as a reminder that in defence, what you see on the surface is not always what is happening on the ground. Thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure, Ed,
1: Um, thank you, and um, I look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The View, a production of Kindred Media.